episode 19 of Game Study Study Buddies. Oh, thank you for welcoming me to our own podcast. You're welcome. (laughs) 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 We have fun here. Ho, ho, ho. He, he, he. Where this episode is on Carly Kasurik's 2015? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. The voice goes up when it's a question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, 2015 uh, book, Coin-Operated Americans, colon, Rebooting Boyhood at the Video Game Arcade. Um, it's out from University of Minnesota. Um, people who listen to the show regularly will have heard, I think, a little bit about this um, when we talked about uh, Shira Chess's book. Mm-hmm. Shira Chess, uh, in the introduction to that book, um, kind of says, hey, Carly Kasurik has done something similar to what I'm doing around design identity here, but not, uh, you know, just in structure, not in argument, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, as, as you have here on the sheet, uh, helpfully, Michael, uh, Kasurik is a, an associate professor of digital humanities and media studies at Illinois Institute of Technology, um, has done two books, um, so this book, and then a book on Brenda Laurel, a game designer. Mm-hmm. Um, Kasurik is, uh, she's the co-editor of the uh, the series out of, I think, NYU Press, where it's like individual um, individual designers. Hold on, I can tell you the name of the series. No, it's from Bloomsbury. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's from Bloomsbury Academic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the Influential Video Game Designers series. Um, I actually taught one of these books. I taught the first one on Miyamoto. Oh. Um, like like a few years ago when it came out. Uh, yeah, there's one on Brenda Laurel, there's one on Miyamoto, and there's one on Jane Jensen. Um, uh, so they're like kind of single, you know, single person books, uh, kind of overviews of their career, but also like digging their history books on purpose. Uh, they're cool. I, I, I thought the Miyamoto book was, was very cool. Um, yeah, publishes a lot. Did uh, Choice Texas, if you remember that game from a few years ago. Yes, I do. I do remember that game. So anyway, yeah, so we decided to, uh, you know, this book and Game Study Study Buddies, if you've never listened to it before, we kind of go back and forth between big books in the field, um, you know, big classic books um, that that seemingly everyone cites, and the newer stuff that we think is exciting and interesting to kind of talk about how those books might be used and what does it mean to have a canon for game studies and how do we maybe disrupt those canon uh, or that canon. Things like that. Um, But this is a book, I think, that's kind of in the middle in a weird and interesting way. Very new. You know, we're in 2020 now, Mm -hmm. the devil's year. And um, this this came out five years ago. I'm trying to do math. Uh, My (laughs) PhD is not in math. Um, But um, so, yeah. So but it's a book that is new certainly by academic standards, still very new, Mm -hmm. Um, but also has kind of like worked its way in as like a book that people should be reading, right? So Mm -hmm. so maybe a a quote-unquote new classic. Um, I think part of that has to do with the relative lack of critical history in game studies. Yes, I, I think like in reading this book, that struck me as kind of the most unique feature of it is uh, it's, it is, yeah, it is critical history, as you say. It's not doing kind of a, a formal thing, trying to figure out what are games, and uh, it's not trying to figure out like what is the nature of play or anything like that. It is it is asking a question about the history of, of games, and uh, we'll get to what that question is, but then trying to answer it through historical argument and research. 
Yeah. And, you know, there are other people that uh, obviously who are doing this kind of stuff. So like uh, Lane Nooney or Yaroslav Svelch or the myriad number of other people who are doing game history. I'm not saying that like, oh, game history doesn't exist. But this book is kind of surfaced up um, as as a uh, is a critical part of the game's history. And Rayford Gians, I can't I, I'm, I'm so sorry about the. I, I have such a hard time with his last name in the same way that I have a hard time saying my own last name. So please, <laughs> please forgive me. Um, Cameron uh, Prinzelmas. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Sounds right to my ear. But um, but uh, but yeah, so I think we're going to dive right in. The benefit, you know, Michael and I were talking about this off mic before, or not the benefit, but the uh thing about this book right is it is a history book and so normally what you know uh, if you've listened to our three-hour marathon episodes the way the show normally goes is like there's a critical point being made or a philosophical point or a conceptual point being made and we like get in the weeds like <laughs> we, we well miranda it's... would yeah yeah we're like we're in there and we're just like fighting around and we're, you know we're finding bugs and snakes that's where all the good <laughs> ideas come from or like um, oh you know what aristotle would have said about this yeah exactly the but the function of a history book right is that Caserica is doing a huge amount of like of archival work and a big chunk of the book is just presenting that archival work and making this kind of linear argument about um, where arcades come from, where they go, what kind of people interact with it, how those people are represented in the media. That's a big chunk of this book, all that kind of stuff. So this will probably be a shorter episode, if only because there's less for Michael and I to have very minute and small disagreements with. Because <laughs> uh, we're, you know, well, I'll say I'm not a historian. Right. I, I'm a historian of a very, uh, I care a lot about history, but I, I think, um, especially after finishing my degree and, and being able to kind of do whatever I want for a little while, <laughs> um, I, I have gotten closer to a historiographer um, than a historian. I've been reading a lot of academics presenting and talking about games kind of in my free time. So I, I do a lot of like, I guess, historical methods, but historiographical methods, um, less like actual serious one-on-one history whereas michael i guess you are more of a historian i mean a historian by by way of literary study which is if you will ask someone who is actually trained as a historian right is a very very big difference and i'm not going to disagree with them that's not me trying to throw them under the bus or throw shade um but uh when a historian is doing history they are going to have different kind of uh concerns than than i do which is of course as, as a literary historian my concern is always like how are books people are reading the most important thing in the world actually that's 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 one way of saying what literature scholars are up to uh-huh. um whereas uh historians proper can can do much more expansive things uh or focus on much more expansive uh, objects let us say <laughs> yeah they yeah they can uh, but then they have to write like multi-volume books yes right? so mm-hmm. it come you know uh Maybe they maybe they uh, learn more about the time period, but they gotta work harder. <laughs> yeah, they can't just uh, be like, "Oh, well, you know, one play figured this all out. It was yeah. Hamlet." Surprise! Surprise! Uh, take that, historians! Ha <laughs> uh, <laughs> ha! But um, but yeah, so so that's all to say, 
well, you know, we'll probably, as far as talking about this book, we're probably going to spend uh, quite a bit of time in the first couple chapters, and then we'll maybe summarize or, or tell you what we thought was most interesting about the middle chapters, and then we'll, we'll talk about the conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. It's not to say that any of the history stuff is not super cool and important. I enjoyed reading this book quite a bit, but um, but to some extent, it would just be us telling you what is in the book, um, mm-hmm. which is partially what we do in this podcast, but partially we... Uh, present the the big ideas so mm-hmm. um, we're gonna have more big ideas in this episode and less kind of beat by beat um, here's when the arcade was founded and here's what the arcade did mm-hmm. you want to start us off michael with the introduction ah sure thing um so this is something that i actually didn't include in my notes uh but you did in yours uh this book begins as many books do with a personal anecdote of christmas 1989 um, I think that this is important, and I just left it out of my notes because I didn't uh, think to mark it down. Uh, but I think it is important. Well, be- well, it actually has to do with uh, Michael's War on Christmas. If you're yeah. interested in that, uh, go ahead and send him a tweet about it. Uh, he loves <laughs> the War an, on Christmas. Keep keep an eye out for my my uh, solo podcast, like destroying Christmas with Michael Lutz. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, so uh, Kosurik begins begins with. Uh, Uh, this anecdote about Christmas in 1989 uh, when she, her family receives, is it a a Game Boy? Um, Yes, I believe so. Because talking about Tetris all the time afterwards. Yes. Okay. Um, So uh, we've actually, we had a couple of other books that have, you know, these personal anecdotes before. um, And it is particularly important, I think for Kosurik because uh, she is establishing something here, which is that, you know, in 1989, uh, it was not that weird for her, uh, you know, a, a young girl at the time, right now, woman writing. Um, it was not that weird for her to be playing a video game. Um, and yet throughout kind of the, the ensuing decade, uh, the nineties, as we called it, um, when living through it, uh, <laughs> uh, we got a very strong, uh, gendering of of the gamer as a cultural figure um not to say that it was not sort of gendered before uh because one of the things kasurik is going to point out is that uh what happens in the 90s is in some ways an actualization of groundwork that has been laid in the like late 70s early 80s uh but um using this kind of personal anecdote of uh you know, starting out being like, oh, okay, I, you know, am a young girl, I can play Tetris on, on the Game Boy or what have you. Uh, and then the slow drift toward, uh, popular cultural drift uh, toward the gamer as a boy, as male, right? Gamer as a male-coded uh, kind of hobby. Um, and the core question of this book is, how did that happen, right? How did, how did uh, gaming as a hobby become so strongly gendered and why did she and other girls drift away because uh you know she doesn't have like a like nothing happened in her life where someone came up to her and was like you know what you can't play games anymore because you're a girl like Mm -hmm. that just that that is not how that happens usually um and many people just kind of you know get slowly diverted away from things or into other things because of how culture works, right? The sort of depersonalized nature of it. And the question Kasurik is interested in answering is what were kind of the, the cultural flows that diverted girls away from games? Yes. What's interesting about it, there are two things I thought was uh, were very interesting here. 
uh, in the intro. One was that uh, in her like list of things that girls went on to do, that, that peers went on to do um, that were not games, uh, <laughs> one of them is competitive horseback riding. <laughs> Which uh, which really demonstrates maybe a class difference um, mm-hmm. um, between this because and and I say this because when I was growing up right and this is this is in the nineties so so this is a little bit after um, I don't I don't even think there was this level of acceptance of girls playing games at a young age I don't know anyone I don't I, don't, I did not grow up with any women who grew up getting for Christmas some sort of gaming apparatus. That was just, like, not a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly when I was in, like, middle school and high school, that kind of broke up a little bit. Um, and I knew uh, young women who played games. But, you know, it was almost like um, an inversion by the time that I get here, right, mm-hmm. of uh, playing video games as a young woman becomes a form of rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way that, like, liking my chemical romances or whatever right yeah right 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 Um, it's there's a this is i'm not trying to be disparaging here right but there is like the the alternative uh scene right like absolutely being being a little bit of a goth a little bit of a nerd that sort of thing yeah yes and all or the vast majority of women i knew who were playing games uh like in middle school and high school were of that persuasion right Mm -hmm. um and as a uh uh uh, middle schooler who was also that way <laughs> you know it might be a selection uh sample too right of the women who would talk to me but um <laughs> but but yeah uh so i thought that was interesting that that there is a um it's hard for me to know the reason i bring that up is it's hard for me to know is that a function of time in the sense of like i'm coming you know i think i'm about i think i'm about 10 years younger than kasurik I would say mm-hmm. eight to 10 years younger. Um, and so is it a function of time? Did like all this stuff just happen and women couldn't even be like pushed out in adolescence. They were pushed out earlier. Or is it a difference in class and uh, geography, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in a Southern culture and, and where, where generals are, are very, very strictly kind of policed all the time. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a place where, the the agenderedness of video games never existed, or or the non genderedness of video games never existed to begin with. Well, from so here's my story in this in this vein. Um, I was probably I was introduced to video games by my older sister, mm. uh, but and this is key. My older sister is nine years older than me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's a big gap between us um, because of the vagaries of how families work, and. Uh, so nine years older than me, and she had, I remember playing Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers with her when I was very, very little. Those are the first games I remember playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if your estimation of uh, Kosurik's uh, sort of cohort is basically correct, right, then she's about as old as my sister. Um, and I will say that, like, my sister did not continue to be a gamer. My older sister did not do this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, she kind of you know, grew up and got into sort of sports and cheerleading and things like that. Um, and in in my sort of childhood uh, up to middle school in rural Indiana, uh, I did not really know any girls who played video games. Like, I'm sure they existed, uh, but 
you know, we were like, I went to school with 39 other people and we had all known each other since we were in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, I think that also has to do with my thing, right? I think I, I graduated with something like 90 people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's for like, that's for a, a city school in a county. So yeah, it's just not that many. So, so it is could be selection it, size. <laughs> so I would say like, uh, Kosurik's, uh, history it, it mapped onto uh what i could sort of intuit about about history when i was younger right like there mm-hmm. was this sense that when games were newer because i i knew that like you know the nintendo was the first video game ever of course mm-hmm. uh but like when those things were newer it was more common um it seemed like like all of like not only my sister but i think like all of my cousins most of whom were also girls uh all had nintendos the, the the large cohort of Nintendo owners, yeah. Um, but but so what's interesting about this, right? I, I think um, is that she she does all this setup and and kind of works through this narrative, and then she on this is on page X I I I. Uh, she she kind of does this turn, right? So she mm-hmm. this is a quote in this book. Rather than study the exclusion of women and girls, I focus on the inclusion of men and boys. Mm-hmm. In my research, I departed from a simple question: When and how did video gaming come to be seen as the exclusive domain of young men? Yes. So so what the book is after, I, you know, after setting this kind of stuff up, thirteen pages of, of setup around um, gender here, is not like why are women driven away? Although that is like a very interesting project, um, it, and I think it's actually, I think this is, I think Shira Chess's next book is about this to some extent, um, hmm. but uh, but so it's not how did young women get driven away, but how were young men repeatedly brought into the fold of video games and so video games kind of warping themselves around young men throughout as you were saying earlier the late 70s and the early 1980s or the late 70s and through the 80s and i would say that this this you know it's uh rebooting boyhood at the video game arcade and so the that's the subtitle and so the book is overwhelmingly concerned with like the arcade period um which Mm -hmm. is the 70s through the through the 80s well, and um, like sort of in 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 broad strokes, right? Uh, and I think this is this is a good tactic to take uh, on Kosturik's part uh, is basically saying, you know, video games come out, they have a whole bunch of stuff. Like they they come out when they're in arcades. Even there's a lot of stuff going on in video games, um, but they are not just marketing toward young boys. There are all of these kind of uh, currents running through them that get amplified selectively throughout history that, as you put it, you know, bring more and more boys into uh, the the gaming culture. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Or, the, uh, the, no, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, or at the very least, um, present to the broader culture the idea that these things are for boys, which is part of that amplification process. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, uh, the representation does not always necessarily match up with the with the lived reality. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good point. the the um, The kind of move there too is that 
this kind of amplification process comes with certain values. And I think that this is like the, the, the jump we have to make with Kasurik. And in chapter one, I think we'll talk more about it because I'm a little bit confused about kind of the mechanism here. You know, anyone who listens to the show, anyone who talks to me about academic stuff, you, you know, I love a mechanism. <laughs> you know, I love an explanatory mechanism. Um, but uh, so this is on XVIII. Uh, she says, uh, quote, I show that arcade games train players in gaming behaviors by rewarding them through points game time and the ability to access subsequent game levels or by explicitly ranking them against other players on top scores list lists and this is a little bit further down the page quote the arcade itself can be seen as a simulation of emergent economic values and practices that have persisted long past the eclipse of the arcade's zenith and so what we're going to see it's been set up here in the introduction but what we're going to see in the first chapter is that this is an argument that is reliant on a couple different things. It's reliant on both, you know, a history of video games and arcades, and we're going to get that. It's reliant on a theory of masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's relying on a theory of what games do to people, right? Like, like what kind of behaviors can games train us to do? And it's reliant on an understanding of what's going on in economics in the seventies and eighties and the transformation in uh, particular, I mean, this is only about American. So it's a transformation in American economics in the seventies and eighties. So that's a lot of different things to be responsible for, I think. And I, and I'll be honest, I think I get a little bit confused about how all of those things thread together, but we can talk about that in chapter one when we get there. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, what do you think about this um, anecdote about going to Alam- Alamogordo at, at the uh, end of the introduction? It's it is interest. Well, so I guess uh, the point that I took from it, one of the things that uh, Kosurik is is kind of making, I think. So, actually, let me back up just in case someone out there listening does not know about the the Atari um, waste site at Alamogordo. Uh, the, the legend goes that when the home, when the Atari, when the home console market, uh, cratered because of, you know, uh, shoddy business practices and Atari went under, uh, they took thousands upon thousands of cartridges of the E.T. video game, notoriously a terrible game, and buried them out in the desert. Um, and then in what year was it? Was it 2012? Uh, I think it's like 2012. Sure, we'll say that, and if it's wrong, I'll correct you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, it's like, in 2012, uh, there is a... Oh, it's 2014. Okay. 2014. I literally er- also pulled it up at yes, the same no. time. Early 2014. Um, uh, Kosurik goes to this uh, big event, which is they are going to excavate this this uh, this dump site, essentially. And it sounds extremely unpleasant to be there, because it's a whole bunch of people standing around in the desert getting sunburned while watching excavators work. Yeah, uh, it seemed like a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, uh, but what, you know, it turns out that it wasn't just E.T. games that were buried there. There were all sorts of, of overstock things buried there, all of this electronic waste. Um, and to my to my mind, right, one of the points uh, Kosurik was making uh, was about how... Uh, when you when you get into the materials of history, the things that are left over, uh, you find things that you weren't expecting, things that surprise you, things that the history that you were told, which is that these were all ET games, uh, those things get you know, like like the 
the the division between myth and history right mm-hmm. is is a very thin one in this instance um and that is kind of an example of the the overall project of the book because i think uh Maybe still now to some extent, but especially I think probably in 2015-2014, there was probably this sense that, when I say probably, right, I'm thinking like if you had asked Michael in 2014-2013, like were games always gendered male, I would have just been like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, makes sense. Um, And she's kind of making this point that like when you get into the materials of history, you can find uh, more heterogeneous answers to to questions like that yeah i think a good guide for all historical research and and anyone who's never done historical research i think sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around um and and the reason that is is because ideology is so compelling and powerful right but Mm -hmm. the the shape of the world now is not the shape of the world as it has always been right like i you know that's a fundamental i think claim or um insight or lever that uh historical research is able able to pull right that Mm -hmm. that the way that we have naturalized or essentialized certain things about life or gender or economics or any of those things um generally within living history those things are different than they are now and um it is some powerful component of human memory and nostalgia and repetition that makes us forget Um, you know, very basic facts of life, even 10 years out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we don't do the work, and I think this is, you know, this is getting closer to kind of Kasurik's point more, more generally, if we don't do the work of, of highlighting the voices and, and the perspectives that are within living memory, they will just pass on into like the archive somewhere and and we won't have a good grasp on it anymore. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. Our video gaming culture is in the shape that it is right now is less than 20 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. before that, it was pretty significantly different, as we're going to find out in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Let's go to chapter one. Yeah, I was going to say chapter one, because as chapter one points out, uh, video games become a part of not 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 exactly daily life right but things that can become encountered by people and be slowly be incorporated into daily life not really through home consoles but through uh video arcades yeah you can go to a place and you can play a a bunch of games (laughs) you could do that i was watching a uh um a uh british restoration show last night uh-huh because that's the kind of exciting i am <laughs> Do, when you say restoration you mean like restoration of antiques and not like the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 right of course of course you would ask that question Michael. i restoration means something very specific to me as someone who studies the 17th century so uh, uh little r not capital r how about okay. that uh yeah so it's antique restoration and uh they were restoring a magic lantern which is you know kind of an mm-hmm. early early projector is a projector basically mm-hmm. and uh so th- this very old man was like yeah you know the magic lantern is cool because before it was invented you know to see a big picture somewhere you had to go to a church or you had to go to some rich person's house mm-hmm. um and while that's maybe not exactly 100 percent true uh that is close enough to true that i thought it was interesting and cool and and i think you know a nice confluence of having seen that reading this book around the same time is it's a very similar thing here right um in the early late 60s early 70s uh if you wanted to see a video game you had to go to a big research lab 
Mm -hmm. And it's only in, what, 72 when we get uh, Computer Space um, Mm -hmm. and the other one at the same time. So so Bushnell Bushnell and the other guy, who Ted Dabney. (laughs) There we go. Sorry, I'm running through in my head. I've taught game history like a million times, but it's been a couple of years. So I'm like going through my head. Um, But you get the beginning of of, um, arcade machines in 1972. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can go there and you can play them. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, well, they start out as like bars and things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then it's really uh, the, so the arcade itself, um, despite the fact that there were many, many things called arcades uh, prior to this moment that, uh, so this chapter, I don't think we've said the title, um, is the microcosmic arcade playing at the Mm -hmm. cultural vanguard, um, which is really about the, uh, history and formation of video game arcades, because as I said, uh, you know there were there were things called arcades before that before this that had all sorts of type of all sorts of amusements. Um, when you think of like arcades in the Victorian sense, where they would have had things like magic lantern shows, uh, and uh, things of that nature, and corn dogs, uh, and corn dogs. <laughs> uh, the the video uh, game arcade is a specific evolution of that type of space that comes about in, in kind of the 80s. Um, and as, as we've already kind of covered, one of the things that Kosurik says is the video game arcade is anticipatory of a lot of uh, stuff that comes to define uh, like the late 20th century, early 21st century economy. Um, I don't have page numbers because I was reading a Kindle edition, but just quoting here... Um, it is a space of, quote, individualized competition, technological fluency, and a type of consumer spending often likened to gambling. It also reinforces what have become prevailing ideas about masculinity. That is page number four. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, so uh, there is, well, we'll get to sort of the specifics of this, but that is in in broad strokes what uh, what the arcade is doing, according to Kosurik. Um but with this, of course, it, it's not just like, oh, there are arcades now and we've all got new ideas about masculinity. There is pushback uh, to this on like a local on a local and a cultural level. There are moral panics about uh, arcades because in addition to uh, sort of the I mean, because there is a history of things called arcades, um, there are things in arcades that are pretty salacious. Right. This is where uh, the first kind of commercial pornography starts showing up in certain arcades. Right. You get little peep shows. Uh, then uh, there's a lot of uh, organized crime uh, running through arcades, things of that nature. And video game arcades come out of this coin-operated model that has a lot of uh, unsavory associations. Yeah, I want to. I'm glad that you bring that up because I think something that's interesting here in that history and, and Kasurik, you know, is after video game arcades, so it doesn't super dig in deep here. But uh, Amy Herzog's work about coin-operated porno- pornography. She's mm-hmm. written a couple. I think she's working on a book, but she's written a couple essays on it. is fascinating. So she does this kind of historical research in New York City around. Um, Basically, there were coin-operated machines that you could put at a table in the 1950s, and it would play music for you at your table. And in the 1960s and 70s, pornography companies realized you could just take this exact same apparatus and attach it to a projector, and then (laughs) you could turn 
you, you could just make it project porn in a booth, right? Or through mm-hmm. like a little peep show, depending on what the thing is. And so, um, so very quickly, like coin operated technology and time associated with, uh, or expenditure associated with just wasted time, right? Gets monetized yes. um, in, in a really cool and interesting way. And so, yeah, exactly as you're saying, this like, if you've got a quarter and a little bit of time to burn, this is a great way to spend your time moves out of music, pornography, and into video games mm-hmm. um, in, in, a, in a very fascinating and weird way. And, and she kind of says that the some of the interesting stuff going on here is around what it what the arcade offers, right? She says that it offers sight, sound, and play. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of she works through all of those. Uh <clears throat> So a couple of things that end up happening um, when when these coin-operated machines uh, start moving into uh, sort of family-friendly, quote-unquote, arcades is they carry with them this association with, uh, you know, coin-operated pornography and also, like, the fact that uh, a lot of coin-op machines came out of bars, which were adult spaces, um, and now suddenly we're expecting kids to be uh, playing these games, spending all of their quarters, right? teaching kids to waste their money is kind of the argument that gets made. Um, and who knows what this is doing to their moral development. Uh, one of the things that Kosurik is saying is that this anticipates uh, the the service-based economy of the 90s and the 2000s, where you kind of uh, work up a cachet of, you know, I have this many quarters, I can afford to put this many quarters into the machine, uh, you know, play for this much time, uh, th- there is a, a sort of entrainment in in the arcade goer in certain ways of interacting, not only with your own finances, uh, but also for thinking about your your daily interactions with technology specifically. Because the thing that makes video game arcades uh, unique uh, is the video games, right? These are, uh, as you said, things that up until this point had kind of been hidden away in university labs. Um, they are computers, literally, as uh, people are starting to understand that computers are a thing that are going to more and more influence what they are doing in their day-to-day lives. Uh, this is how a, a whole cohort of young people are being introduced to what computers are and how they work and what they can do. Yes, 100%. Um, let's take a second here to, to kind of walk over, because I think there are like two or three things. Like I said uh, earlier there are a lot of different threads of argument that i think are happening here and i think it might be useful heuristically for us to pull pull these apart so Mm -hmm. on like pages 24 to 31 if you're following along at home um Kasurik is making this economic argument, right? So the 1970s, you end up with an oil crisis. You end up with uh, inflation. I'm saying you end up with as if, like, uh, you're cooking. And you it's like, the 70s. It's the yeah, 70s. Time to have inflation. Yeah, it has inflation. But, right, there are a lot of um, economic shocks that are happening around uh, the loss of post-1945 growth, basically, right? So so the United States in particular uh, experienced uh, a time of unprecedented economic growth through the end of World War II up until the 1960s uh, and then certainly into the 1970s. The 1970s gives us all kinds of like big things that happen, right? So uh, we end up with uh, oil crisis uh, from uh, OPEC, basically uh, increasing oil prices, which grinds the American economy to a halt for a little while. You have the end of the Bretton Woods system, which is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so attaching American, uh, the dollar, the value of the dollar to gold, um, mm-hmm. 
because basically the prior, the promise had always been before that, uh, if you can cash out your American dollars into gold, um, doing that obviously would mean a massive disinvestment from the United States. It would, it would, if you know, if you're another country holding American dollars, you would be able to say, I have a hundred million American dollars. I would like that turned into gold for me, please. Gold at the time would have been backing the American currency, which would create this kind of cycle of uh, economic downturn. It would be a, a true nightmare <laughs> of disinvestment of the United States. And so uh, Richard Nixon gets rid of the Bretton Woods system. Um, so n- now uh, money and capital is just purely let free to do whatever it wants to do and proliferate on its own without any attachment to um, gold or anything like that, another another backing currency. Um, and then she kind of moves into using these as a way of talking about what David Harvey and Frederick Jameson call the emergence of late capitalism or post-modernity or however you want to say it, which is um, particularly in, in the economic uh, region, it is the birth of expanded finance capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so where uh, investment and growth and um, the ability to make money uh, is wildly, you know, um, decoupled from material conditions in many different ways. Um, it also comes with a uh, transformation, which you were talking about earlier, Michael, about a transformation into a service economy. So it's not about building, I don't know, steel beams anymore. It's about um, being a travel agent, right? So much mm-hmm. more uh, careers that are about the moving of money and the moving of finance um, and selling these kind of immaterial services as opposed to making wooden chairs or something like that. And mm-hmm. so that uh, creates a, a radically different economy uh, instead of economic conditions that people live under. That's all to say, uh, what Kasurik is arguing here, like you know, like David Harvey or like Frederick Jameson or any of these other people, is that the change in economic condition means a change in life, which means a change in experiences and she's never using this word as far as I can remember, but a change in ideology, right? A mm-hmm. change in the way that you think about the world you live in and how you consider your place in that world. Is all that fair, Michael? Yes, I would say so. Okay. And so uh, she says um, that, that th- this kind of fundamental change coinciding with the arcade means that the arcade becomes a place where... Um, that ideology or that way of living within late capitalism is educating you, right? You become a good person living in that world through the transformational apparatus of the arcade. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair thing? Yes. Okay, because this is on 31. She says, quote, The high individualization of video gaming's competition and skills appears to look forward to the rise of freelance and contract labor as a dominant mode of work. So she literally is saying that the way you go into an arcade and experience yourself as a player um, is a preface or, or kind of a precursor for the way that the economy, like you were saying, Michael, changes in this, especially the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, she repeatedly uses this phrase, didactic. Mm-hmm. Um, so on 33, she says, quote, didactic introduction of these new practices. So the idea that the arcade is teaching you a way of being in the world. But what I'm confused about, though, is I don't I, I, I think I find that hard to swallow. Unpack like, that, please. 
it's like psychoanalysis michael is logged on mm-hmm. um <laughs> i i so i find arguments around this to be compelling because i think they're fundamentally true right like i'm a good old Foucauldian <laughs> somewhere in my heart of hearts um you know i i buy the sheer chess argument around um designed identity which works in a very similar way but i think what's different about this book and sheer chess's book is that that chess the, the whole book is looking at different locations in which that is happening and how that creates a composite or component um, a, a picture of, of of how you're produced, I guess mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying. And in the arcade, I, I don't I just find it a really hard time. I don't know, I guess I don't I don't I don't know if I think the arcade is as human warping as as it needs to be in order to make this um, important or, mm-hmm. or, or, or to make this argument land for me. I think it's a component, right? And I guess maybe as we get through the, the later chapters, which specifically focus on film and other kind in advertising in particular, that, that, that maybe the whole picture for me comes together, but I just don't like, you know, speaking differently. Well, let me put it this way. I think some people interacted with the arcade in the way that we're about to look at in chapter two and in the way that Kusurik argues in chapter one, that, that highly individualized, trying to perform hyper well, trying to do the work of, of being a good arcade goer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know plenty of people. Um, and, you know, again, this is later, right? I'm not in arcades in the eighties. And so or the late seventies. So maybe there's a big difference here, but the arcade was just like, basically a place to waste money um you know we could have fun and we could play games that we did not have access to most of the time um but yeah i just i never i never once in my life was like i gotta get the high score uh and i didn't you know i had lots of friends who i would go to the arcade with too and no one was chasing high scores uh no one was chasing the kind of values that are in the arcade um and i guess i can see the response argument being well the system already worked on you, right? Like you don't have mm-hmm. to, the arcade doesn't work that way for you or for, you know, for me specifically, because I was already born into the system where all of this had already won to some extent, right? This was the right. ideology we were living in. So it didn't have to be transformational for me, but I just, the, the description of how arcades worked on people in the eighties versus how they worked on my generation is very, very different. Um, so, so I find it harder, I guess, to, to empathize with. Whereas opposed to like, if we read Foucault and we talk about how prisons work, I'm like, yes, that is exactly how prisons work. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have much to say to that other than I think, I think I agree with your sense of like your experience with um, arcades, right? Like you and I being of a cohort. Um, and so mm-hmm. the, the counter argument that, that you mentioned applies to me as well. Um, this also speaks to, I think, one of the more complicated points of this book is there is a kind of, let's say, theoretical argument being made about what arcades were doing. Um, but also there is like one of the one of the questions is kind of how are arcades being represented and how are the types of people who play games and go to arcades represented? Mm. Um, there's, there's a tension between kind of cultural representation of these people and then the, the actual practices of these people. And it is difficult to disentangle those at times. Yeah. I, I think that's a really great, great way of putting it that, 
you know, and and this is uh, is like a very unfair ask, right? Because I, you know, to be clear, I'm not this kind of scholar. I'm not the person who's like out there interviewing a bunch of people. Um, but I I know there were some interviews done. So like an interview with Walter Day gets gets cited quite a bit in the next chapter. We're going to talk about, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just, it's just unclear to me, yeah, exactly this kind of tension you're pointing out. How much of this is, this is what, by looking at arcade machines and looking at the way people talked about arcades, we know that this was happening in them versus the people who were in arcades saying what was happening in them. And we, we get a lot of, of the perspective of arcade players in Chapter 2 that we're about to talk about, but we get that mm-hmm. perspective through Twin Galaxies Arcade, which is a very particular kind of a highly unique example, I think, nationwide mm-hmm. um, about that. But um, do you have anything, I guess, to say other about Chapter 1 before we get to Chapter 2? No, I think I think we're actually on a great point to move into Chapter 2. Okie dokie. <laughs> so this is called Gaming's Gold Medalists, Twin Galaxies and the Rush to Competitive Gaming. There's a, there's a famous photograph, Michael. Are you, are you uh, aware of this photograph? I am, actually. So it's a it's a life photograph from Life Magazine. Life Magazine. Sorry, uh, it's, like, it's a photograph taken of people that were alive. That's great. Yes, yes. Life Magazine, cap, capital L Life. Mm-hmm. Um, from do you have a year in front of you? I, I did not write oh, the year. Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I don't um, know. Hold on. This is how you know I'm not a historian, is I don't write down the dates when things happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I write down the dates, but uh, 1982. Because you get to say things like the 16th century. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, so it's a 1982 photograph of uh, uh, In Life magazine that is put together by Twin Galaxies, which is an arcade in Ottumwa, some Iowa? state, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it is the high scorers um, in uh, of video games, right? It's the video game Hall of Fame, basically. Mm-hmm. Up until that point. So it's all the arcade cabinets plus a bunch of young men who are all the highest scorers in those games. Mm-hmm. And the whole ch- this whole chapter kind of unfolds from a close reading of this photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, and to give you an idea, you can look up this photograph on your own. Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to give you intense details, but they're on Main Street um, the photograph is, is kind of them in a big line, very uh, The Last Supper. <laughs> um, and so it's the arcade cabinets. They're kind of standing behind it, and they're leaning over it. Some of them are leaning over it. And then there is a line of and they are all men. They're all men is they're all a, men. an important point. Or they're young all, boys or whatever. Yeah. And uh, then there's a line of five cheerleaders kind of below them, crouching and doing mm-hmm. cheerleader stuff. Um, kind of being like, yay, the, the boys. Mm-hmm. And that's the... Uh, and that's the photograph. Yes. What, what do we learn from this photograph, Michael? Well, so one of the one of the things that's important to understand is that uh, day when he starts keeping lists of high scores, this is not like there is no institution behind this, right? Mm-hmm. Or rather, like we are witnessing kind of the birth of an institution or an who, attempt at institutionalization. Who is day, Michael? Uh, day is uh, what's his first name? Is it Walter? Walter. Walter Day. Yes. Well, so Walter Day is the proprietor of the Twin Galaxies Arcade in Ottumwa, Iowa, um, and he starts uh, at some point keeping uh, a list of high scores for people, like 
playing in his establishment. And this kind of grows out partly because he sees a business opportunity here. Mm -hmm. Um, This starts growing outward because he starts uh, connecting with other proprietors of other arcades. And instead of just doing this one arcade's high score list, he is running a a national high score list. Um, So people are calling in and reporting scores, and he is updating leaderboards. Day decides... um, Again, because he sees a business opportunity, right? This day strikes me as a mercenary is maybe a harsh term because he doesn't seem like mean, but like day is a business savvy dude. Um, he decides that he is going to pitch to Life Magazine that we're going. He's like, oh, you know, it's it's like this gaming thing. Like this is the wave of the future, and luckily I'm going to make a lot of money from it. So Life Magazine, what you need to do is come here to Atumwa. I'm going to fly out all of the high score. Uh, all, all the people who have like high scores nationally and we're going to take a group photo so people will see like this is the face of, of like uh, the gamer or not, not, he's not saying these terms right but like he, he is making a point that um, these young men are representative of something about America in like what 1982 1983 um, and uh, they are rep- representative of something about the culture at this point in time and will be important to the culture moving forward. All of these claims are kind of baked into what he is doing. Um, so uh, he miraculously, honestly, it, it is very surprising to me that he pulls this off, uh, gets Life Magazine to agree, <clears throat> and uh, he pulls like th- this photo exists and one of the things Kasurik is doing is unpacking what seems to have been persuasive about the way day framed this argument uh so for instance one of the things that she mentions you already talked about how there are cheerleaders in this in this photograph right sort of pa- uh posing along with uh the the young men mm-hmm. um day taps into an already existing discourse about male athleticism in sports in order to legitimize gaming as as a hobby. Yeah, the and and all of the other kind of registers of those things uh, get like show up here too, right? So, um, <laughs> she calls them specifically clean cut, which I, I think some of these guys are clean cut, but mm-hmm. also it's you know it's the what the yeah it's the early eighties, so maybe maybe our definitions of, of clean cut are a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. They a lot of them have like like that terrible teen boy mustache, right? Um, which is deeply unfortunate for everyone. I'm sorry if you're a teen boy. Look, here's some advice from an, from an adult an adult boy. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if you are a teenager right now, and you have that weird little wispy mustache, cut it off. Okay, yeah, it's just not wait a few you. years. Wait a wait, few years. Yeah, exactly. Just wait a little while. Take it take it from grown men who have mustaches. Attached to, to exorbitant, luscious beards. <laughs> Take it from us. Just cut that thing off. You'll be okay. Yeah. It's anyway. Helping We're helping the youth out here. At, uh, we're, we're, we are uh, redefining masculinity here. Uh, <laughs> at the Game Study Study Buddies podcast. Telling telling people to wait a bit before they try growing mustaches. Yeah. And you know what? If you want to do that, if you're, if you're growing a mustache for the first time, I get it. Like, you should do that. If you can only grow a wispy mustache, then that's what you got. And you, you got to figure that out. And I'm sure you can make it stylish and cool. But if you're 13 years old right now and you got a wispy mustache, you can cut it off. It's, it'll be okay. The more you know, Rainbow. Uh-huh. It goes across the screen. So... 
So that's the end of that chapter. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the um uh but but yeah, so so attaching to all these other things that that you that you uh you're referring to um so this kind of uh visual iconography of the sports player and like the teen athlete mm-hmm. um which has a uh obviously a gendered especially in the 80s a, a gendered component and mm-hmm. a, a racial component. Yes. Right. So, so, mm-hmm. so all these things uh, exist, and she uses this as a jumping-off point for talking about kind of doing a, a longer history of access to computing and how that gets gendered, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and personal computing and and how that gets gendered, and so basically ends up using this as a way extrapolating from this photograph in order to make an argument about the ecology of of the late seventies uh, throughout the eighties about who as technology is moving into a new era of uh, increased commercial opportunity, you're talking about Walter Day, increased commercial opportunity, increased accessibility, all those different things that that comes packaged with um, gendered ideas. Um, And so uh, I I think it becomes, you know, I don't think she uses this language, but there's an intensification of um, an inclusionary mechanism of saying, Mm -hmm. Are you a young white man who likes video games? This could be you. Mm-hmm. And an exclusionary mechanism of are are you a young white woman who uh, likes existing? Perhaps you might like to be a cheerleader. Yes. Um, and so there's this obvious kind of ranking and, and preferencing and things like that. Um, also kind of implicit here, as far as I can remember, I didn't see this kind of coming up, but it's unclear. Like people are calling in scores to mm-hmm. twin galaxies um so there could be women right on the earth who who had higher scores than these men but uh through exclusionary or inclusionary mechanisms right so for example here here's uh just a purely speculative something i coming off off the dome but i think fits into the argument of this chapter um i'm i'm from florida i'm not really from florida but in this picture okay. i'm from florida okay. it's 1980 you know what 83 i uh i've got the world's best galaga score um there is a woman who is here a young lady who all has a better score than me but the uh the teen worker who is uh the cashier here and the guy who's the operator of the store for most of the time while the owner's off I don't know, uh, piloting boats. It's my story. He can do whatever mm-hmm. he wants. That's what you do um, in Florida. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a boat-loving culture. Um, mm-hmm. And so so me and the, the clerk, right? The clerk is like, hey, you should report your score. And perhaps the clerk, with his own wispy mustache, does not suggest that the young woman report her score. Right, so that's an inclusionary <laughs> mechanism that happened. Purely speculative on my part, but Michael, as a young man, um, you certainly experienced weird things like that happening to you, right? Where like you I, were brought into the like the social fold of oh, yes, yes, where yes. women were not, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's certainly a thing that I think happens to most men. Um, and so like that would be so so twin galaxies as an apparatus of volunteer voluntarily giving your score and trying to put yourself in a national ranking that in and of itself is a mechanism where local forms of inclusion could have a bigger effect on national inclusion mm-hmm. that. And again, that is not in this book. That is just something that I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating from it, but I think is a pretty, pretty compelling. Um, 
What other stuff from this chapter, Michael? Um, just a couple of things, I think, to to point out. Uh, there, there's more that she talks about in that photograph that I think is kind of interesting, right? The fact that it's Main Street in Ottumwa, mm-hmm. Iowa, and it's a very specific type of Main Street that does not exist now and was you know, on its way to obsolescence at this moment, right? It's the kind, it's the main street, uh, the small stores. And she points out that it, this video, there, this video, this photo was taken um, early in the morning. So it looks deserted. <laughs> it's just like empty. So it, it feels weirdly anticipatory of today's former main streets that have been hollowed out by the big box stores opening up um, near the interstate and that sort of thing. Um, so there's all these, you know, uh, sort of traces of a future that we can find here. Uh, she mentions that uh, the you can see the the local cinema in the background on the marquee has um, a like the the movie that is playing. I can't remember the specific title, but it's, it's one called of those Night like Shift. yeah, Night Shift, one of those shitty like '80s sex comedies where it's just like a couple of guys trying to have sex and women are treated, you know, very badly as comic kind of stereotypes. Uh, uh, Kosturek reads all of this um, into the broader culture um, as, as stuff that um, is influencing the ways that young men are thought about the ways that they are allowed quote unquote to behave uh, and so on and so forth. Um, And the other thing that she kind of, uh, points out that I think is worth just noting if you're a longtime listener of the podcast uh the one of the reasons sports works as kind of a comparative here for Walter Day is because sport is of course already kind of established right it's it's it is okay to be a jock in in the 80s um but prior to that when sport kind of takes off as a like organized sport I should say takes off as a youth pastime um it apparently does so because uh, 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 allegedly it is a means of criminal deterrence. Um, this is a thing that is at stake in arcades, in arcade games, as we've already discussed, because there's a lot of uh, criminal or at least unsavory associations with coin-operated machines generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is worth comparing this to what happens uh, around jump rope uh, and uh, jump rope games in... Uh, as we talked about in our episode uh, on Kyra Gaunt's book, the game's Black Girls Play, where mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, you know jump rope leagues get instituted similarly as a means of criminal deterrence for young girls of color. Um, and thinking about especially the, like, that gets instituted by cops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the different types of attention that are paid to different sorts of youth populations is is worth thinking about here. Yeah, that's a really great connection to make. I did not think about that um, yeah. as I was reading the book. Um, and especially alongside that, right? Not just criminal deterrence, but this kind of... Because uh, she references an interview she does with Walter Day and some other stuff that Walter Day wrote that, that these uh, these ath- you know cyber athletes, early cyber athletes, um, mm-hmm. uh, but th- these competitive high score arcade players that they are both like positioned as as you're saying disciplined athletes but also like wild just young wild men right they're mischievous they're they're hyper intelligent so they get bored real easy um right and you it's, can, it's it's like the the um the silicon valley hacker culture like percolating into the mainstream a hundred percent it it is uh i think if you just pepper the word disruption in there a couple times right 
Um, it's yeah, it's all the same stuff that we see now, even right. I mean, this is I think part of the bedrock of our entrepreneurial culture at this point to see those people, and this is what Kasirk is arguing too, to be clear. But mm-hmm. that that young men who refuse to like bow down to the system are privileged and celebrated for that very value, whereas that is not extended literally to anyone else. And in fact, as you're saying, uh, other populations, particularly people who are not white, um, are are deeply and brutally policed for those exact same reasons, right? Um, and so there's an interesting way in which arcades and, the, and this photograph is intervening here. Uh, you know, she talks mm-hmm. about how these... Uh, two people who were meant to be in the photograph overslept, and so they just weren't in the photograph. How they yeah. got kicked out of multiple uh, hotels while they were in Otumwa. Yes. Uh, for being little scamps. And, like, that's an interesting, you know, that's uh, written Boys will up. be boys. Exactly. Well, not just boys will be boys, but brilliant boys will be brilliant boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ferris Bueller, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, to, to anticipate a later chapter in which we will discuss Matthew Broderick. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a chapter on Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Broderick as the ur gamer, mm-hmm. as as the 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 very bottom of it. Um, yeah, you have anything else to say about this chapter, Michael? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, other than like, uh, it's it's worth pointing out that this chapter is, I think, the word that you used earlier was unfolding. So if the first chapter was about uh, the kind of economic and social models not necessarily irrespective of gender but kind of not as not as much focused on gender um the way those models are being inculcated in the arcade um this chapter is trying to fold out uh you know here here is how this gets gendered right or here is where these gendered aspects really start to come into play um with uh cultural representation yeah and i guess this is a good place to put this too um you know, something that really stuck in my mind as I was reading this, um, like, a, like a criticism, I think, of, of the book, is that I'm not quite sure what masculinity means, um, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the, there's a little bit of a difference uh, of argument that's going on here, or, or, or a, a way that linguistically the argument moves, is that um, we, we both get things are gendered male, and then we get that masculinity kind of gets proliferated or, or put on people. Um, Mm -hmm. in different ways here Um, and and I'll be honest I'm confused at the end of chapter two where I think it should probably be pretty clear to me as a reader I'm still really confused about what masculinity is at its heart Mm -hmm. right is it a set of behaviors that are in men that get accelerated by the arcade is it a set of standards that are placed on people and that gets called masculinity right is it is it some discipline you know, some form of subjectivity or some form of making a type of person, right? So when um, Billy Mitchell, you know, goes and, and does Donkey Kong really good, does he enter the arcade as, as you know, society generally, generally uh, gendering him as male? And then he goes into the arcade and then his masculinity is either transformed by the arcade or is it put on him by the arcade, right? Mm. Uh, is he the hot sauce king because of the arcade <laughs> or for other reasons? And is the hot sauce uh, king thing associated with masculinity, right? Um, I think for me, masculinity as a concept really floats a lot in this book. And I had a hard time, um, like I understand how the argument is being made and I find the the argument being persuasive, but I think there is a kind of ambivalence or, or um, 
just confusion that I have underneath that around masculinity um, that never really goes away uh, goes away for me in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe yeah, that just I would... means I need to read more in masculinity studies. Well, I think I think part of what you're responding to there is um, masculinity in this book tends to get defined as as or it, it not defined actually but recognized by its differences from other forms of incultural race enculturation and mm. especially other forms of masculinity um so one of the things and i don't think this has come up in a chapter so far but it's something that's talked about actually in the matthew broderick chapter um is that in in the sort of pre uh finance like pre-70s era, right, when the economy was really booming, uh, there is this, before uh, the rise of kind of this uh, service-based, credit-based, speculative economy, there is this idea that you are going, like, when you are a man, right, you are going to be a company man. Mm -hmm. You are going to get a good job at such and such a firm, and your individualism, insofar as uh, it is important, is important because you are a part of this greater company project right because you work for ford or you work for i don't know lockheed martin or something um so that is uh one of the things kosurik is saying is that this is an older form of masculinity especially masculinity as it is uh, kind of conceived as an economic proposition um and the the arcade uh the arcadey kind of economy that is coming uh breaks down the idea of the company man and puts forth this mischievous scamp who uh is simultaneously like a scourge upon the earth uh but also kind of the left hand of god because this is this is the disruptive brilliance that is going to bring us into the future um and so the the issue here i think is that uh masculinity broadly construed must be something that can contain both of these um but we don't really get a theorization of masculinity as a force or as a process as you're pointing out um and instead we get kind of uh different versions of it that pop up in in different places yeah i think that's a really good uh kind of summary of, of how it happens um and yeah yeah, I mean, I guess that 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 fun, fundamentally is kind of where I'm at. Is just is masculinity just the term that we give to uh, the experience of being gendered male, right? Is it the mm-hmm. thing that comes before being considered male, right? I you know I don't know about the sequencing here, um, and is it I think something that that you just brought up for me, which which I think I, I don't really understand here is uh, is it at the end of the economy? Meaning, is masculinity a product of the way that you are, that men are expected to generate value? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think, like, I, you know, I phrase this as a criticism. It's a criticism in the sense of, like, here is something I am noticing. This is not a criticism in the sense of, like, you should reject this book and its, and its argument. I think it just asks us to ask interesting questions about masculinity. Um, mm-hmm. And especially in relationship to games. Um at the same time, so yeah, this is a this is a criticism in the sense of like this is generative for me, um, and I think uh, forces us to ask interesting questions, which is um, I think what a book should be doing. So, <laughs> so I, I, it, it's it's a good thing, but but mm-hmm. I think it's a thing to work through and talk about. Chapter three, Michael, is about death race. Hmm. Uh, it's it's my favorite uh, Paul W S Anderson film. 
um oh, starring jason statham yeah i don't know if it is my favorite paul ws i think I, I it's, like... it's actually not my favorite now yeah it was rising all the way is my favorite <laughs> uh, paul ws anderson but i actually i know not even a little bit of of irony here i actually do like the death race remake i think it's very good okay i think it's a fun good. film um i enjoy and you know what i even like the like direct to to streaming sequel sequels there are two of them oh i didn't know that oh my god yeah. oh my god um <laughs> uh anyway yep. uh we're not talking about that actually this is one of those no, things that hard is really... pivot <laughs> here we go uh so death race first of all um actually it's called i think the, the movie is called death race 2000 it is um yeah. the original film from uh again i did not write down 1975 1975 yes a 1975 film um that is uh it's it's a you know sort of famous piece of schlock uh it's a roger corman film right roger corman makes a lot of these sort of low budget genre movies um that are by turns just abysmal um incredibly charming and sometimes both at the same time uh death race is uh i think considered one of his uh better better produced films um, mm-hmm. more competent um it's about it takes place in the future and people have to do a death race to you know kill each other and survive whatever uh this movie is something of a you know phenomenon in its time there is famously an arcade cabinet that is made that is based on this movie but is not licensed this is something that i think is just interesting to keep in mind is that at this point people were making video games that were just pure ripoffs of existing ips things that were popular right i think um in you get in in the book uh kasurik has some screenshots of uh the jaws video game the unlicensed jaws arcade cabinet yeah i'll put this on twitter when this episode comes out but the jaws poster is it's a piece of like it's beauty like it is iconographically nearly perfect there is nothing further from like the affect or the experience of Jaws that that you could do. It's like big bubbly writing. It's like almost mm-hmm. like a kawaii shark. It is. Yeah. It is amazing. I I wanted like an actual print of this for my office. It is. It is very very fascinating. Um, so there's this unlicensed game based on Death Race 2000 that is just called Death Race and causes just a massive kerfluffle uh, because you can run over people in it. Or things that look like people, because ostensibly within within like the fiction of the game, they're goblins or monsters or something. Yeah. Um, but they, it's you know like primitive graphics for the time, but like they they look like little stick figure people, and this is kind of unprecedented for video games. Yeah, and there's a moral panic about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like is like, and it's if if you know anything at all about video games, you know how this conversation works, which is like, oh, this game is training young people, alt men, right? Primarily men. Um, it is training young boys to, uh, it's like uh, uh, desensitizing them to violence and like training them to be like pedestrian murderers mm-hmm. because they can do this in a video game. They're therefore going to just not care as much about the, the moral and ethical consequences of doing such a thing in real life. Perhaps my favorite quotation from anything we've read. And, you know, that's a, that's a high bar. Uh, this is beating out ant drugs. Um, <laughs> you know, this is beating out the, clowns. the hatred, of, <laughs> hatred of clowns. Yeah. Um, this is on page 86. Uh, the article closes. It's talking about an article from the time. 
The article closes by quoting a 13-year-old fan of the game who responds to the suggestion that the game may make him violent. Quote, That's stupid, and besides, I don't even know how to drive. <laughs> I really liked that, too. Yeah, it's like a, that's all like a Marx Brothers-style like comedy <laughs> line. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh... One of the things that Kasurik is doing here uh, in this chapter that I actually think is really interesting is that she does not really just dismiss the the concerns that people had about violence in this game. Because um, it's very easy for us to do that uh, now and forever, I think. To just be like, these, these are little stick figures. And like according to the fiction of the game, they're not even people, right? They're little monsters. And you run them over. And somehow in running them over, you when you kill them, you also drop a little grave marker for them. Like a little like memorial cross. Disrespectful. <laughs> Yes, it's very, very thoughtful of you to do to the, the people you've murdered. Um, but one of the things that uh, Kosurik is wanting to point out is that um, the ways that we recognize violence um, in games is, or, you know, any sort of representation of violence, I think, is uh, heavily determined by a kind of cultural context that can be easy to lose and hard to recover. Um so, uh, for instance, the, the a big part of this for Kosarek's point um, is the cabinet design. Cabinet design. She she gets into cabinet designs here because uh, cabinet designs are kind of your first line of advertisement to the players walking around the arcade. Right? You have a cool looking cabinet. People are going to say, "Hey, what is this game?" Because the graphics, of course, are fairly simplistic. Um, so you rely a lot on uh, in in the instance of Death Race, um, this very like gruesome, hot roddy like skeleton eyeballs uh uh kind of aesthetic yeah it's um, rad like it also yeah. has a, a really good poster yes uh so there's that right and in some ways and this is uh interesting for me to think about um uh so one one of the things that is happening is this these these graphics are teaching you the player how to imagine the gameplay mm-hmm Right. Um, and I'm thinking of this because uh, our other podcast, Too Much Future, in which we play the Fallout games, uh, I was re- I was recently watching uh, the Tim Kaine postmortem on the first Fallout game. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit like uh, maybe halfway through that postmortem uh, where he talks about how they had a um, when they when they added companions to that game, they did not plan on having companion characters, uh, but they added them. Uh, I think as an experiment and then they kept them because the playtesters loved them and there is a particular piece of concept art that has like two sort of like wasteland survivors uh, you know standing atop a a, a ruined car or something while a horde of ghouls like comes at them mm-hmm. um, and he says something like Tim Kaine says something like uh, the playtesters so to be clear this is not at all how Fallout one's combat works right <laughs> it is the most yeah. tedious finicky like boring thing um but tim kane says the play testers when they had companion characters imagined themselves like that was how they saw the action on the screen right that was how they imagined the the sort of uh that they saw what was on screen as a kind of representation or uh, an abstraction of the more cinematic or like cooler kind of fight that was going on and one of the things that Kusurik is saying is that um arcade cabinets and their designs uh did similar work hmm. right they taught you how to imagine um in greater fidelity the abstraction that you were playing with and I think that's really yeah, cool. <laughs> 100%. And this is also something similar to Shira Chess talking about uh, 
like the cinematics in uh, the Diner Dash games, that they work in a similar way of like mm-hmm. contextualizing, allowing you to understand why you're doing this like weird, finicky, casual gaming uh, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so if, if you're interested in the, kind of the play-by-play, I think a lot of this chapter is spent on the play-by-play of um, like how the moral panic worked out. If you're interested in that, you can mm-hmm. check out this chapter. The uh, next chapter then is Anarchy in the Arcade. Uh, and this is about sort of various attempts to regulate uh, coin-op machines. Yeah, this is actually the the first place where I wrote my question, like, what is masculinity? Um, because there's a long section mm-hmm. here um, talking, well, I say a long section, there's like a section of this chapter that is dedicated to Ronald Reagan talking about video games um, and kind mm-hmm. of how Ronald Reagan as president is putting games in like a sequence of like activities for young men that, are, that uh, is below sports, but is in the same universe as sports. Um, and that's something that actually, you know, I, I read a, a little bit of like the esports literature, right? I wouldn't say I'm an expert in it, but, but uh, you know, I read a fair number of papers. And uh, a lot of people dig back into the 80s for that, but I've not seen this this Reagan thing quoted. Maybe, and I say that, maybe I have, and I've just forgotten it. But um, but yeah, kind of mm. digging into that, digging into the relationship between that and uh, pinball and how pinball was regulated over and over again throughout the years. What I find so, and, and how pinball and coin-op gambling machines get kind of mixed in together, uh, which I find fascinating. The logic here, just very briefly, the logic is... Um, no one would put quarters into a pinball machine if they weren't going to get something out of it. Like, that's that's mm-hmm. the, the core logic. But then, you know, the obvious retort is like, the pinball machine doesn't give you a payout. So why would you be doing this? The the moral censors, right, or the people who are, who are panicking specifically or trying to regulate pinball... Their argument is that the free credits you can receive to continue playing pinball for doing well at pinball are like the gambling payout. And and that's <laughs> it's not really gotten into here, but in other writing about it, you there is a much more fine-grained argument about the relationship between uh, randomness and skill here, right? That that pinball mm-hmm. had to be proved that uh, that it was a game of skill that you couldn't just put the quarter in and then and then make the ball go and get the the externalities from it right that you had to be good at mm-hmm. the game in order to get the payout. Well, it's like the the the, the flipper is not added until 1947, the one year I wrote down in my notes. 1947 pinball <laughs> flipper added. That was very amusing uh, to me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so I guess before that it was more like pachinko, right? And that's what I think is interest is like I'm not a huge pinball fan, but like. Mm-hmm. I could not imagine what the hell you are doing with a pinball machine if you are if you don't have a, a flipper. Like I just pull a lever and then the thing bounces around. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> like, and so maybe and and we all think that pachinko is gambling. So you know, there, I think there's a pretty strong consensus on pachinko as gambling. Mm-hmm. It, it's regulated that way. So maybe maybe it was you know maybe that at least made sense at the time. I, I wonder if um, if like bumping the machine was more acceptable at the time oh i bet everyone had to do tilts yeah yeah so maybe maybe the tilt regulation like in the game uh gets added after the flipper does Mm -hmm. i don't don't know i'm not a pinball expert um i'm also not super into pinball um if garrett martin's listening maybe he can let us know (laughs) the only person i know who really loves pinball 
But um, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was an interesting chapter. It's cool. If you're interested in kind of the play-by-play again for this argument, I think this is worth digging down into. Um, but I think we can probably move on to chapter five. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is the Matthew Broderick chapter. We're finally here. Uh, finally, yeah. Actually, it's so it's a uh, it's Matthew Broderick and Jeff Bridges. This chapter um, moves out of uh, sort of the the arcade proper, shall we say? Um, if the last chapter was kind of about uh, so the, the takeaway from the last chapter, I should say. Uh, in, in all of these debates about how we are to regulate arcades and coin-operated machines, um, the thing that Kuchera p- points out is that basically everyone who talks about these things assumes that the people who are using these machines are young boys, or at least men, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. is just, it's just a thing that gets assumed suddenly, um, or not really suddenly, but like, that is that is the assumption being made. The next chapter uh, is about kind of the emergence of the gamer protagonist into popular culture through uh, two films, Tron and War Games. Yes, two yeah. classic films. Mm-hmm. I uh, this is an aside, but did you play the the newest War Games like remake that Sam Barlow did? I did not. No, I didn't either. It's only like four dollars on Steam. Oh, I should check that out. I like Sam. Yeah, stuff. we should play it. You know, if you're if you're listening at home. Maybe check it out. Yeah. Um, so uh, the thing that the, the big thing that uh, gets added here uh, is this idea that I think she I think she borrows um, my notes on this are unclear. I'm sorry. Uh, she she borrows this term from uh, Derek Burl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Derek Burl is relied on really heavily in this chapter. Yeah. Uh, the idea of the te- techno masculine or techno masculinity. And I'm just going to quote this. I'm sorry. Again, I don't have um, uh page numbers techno masculinity is not simply geek masculinity by another name which is to say right like you know these people are simultaneously gendered male but also like they're nerds and they're geeks and you've written that sort of thing um Mm -hmm. although it certainly draws on it nor is it a masculinity aligned with or regimented by sports even if it will occasionally appropriate sports rhetoric it is a masculinity marked by technicity by consumption of computer technologies in particular cultural products by youthfulness and a willingness to bend or break rules where convenient or efficient it is a masculinity that rests not too uneasily with hegemony and then i that sentence goes off other places but um i think like, I think that's an important point to add. It rests not too uneasily with hegemony, even if it can be read as as countercultural in many instances. And this is one of the things that Koshurik points out through um, through Tron and War Games. Uh, in Tron, Jeff Bridges' character is a, uh, a computer programmer who's been, you know, uh, shut out of his own creations, right? He has to run an arcade um, to make ends meet, even though he's programmed all of these successful games. Um and then War Games is Matthew Broderick basically uh, playing Ferris Bueller, who accidentally almost starts World War III. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of like clever, fun, uh, but technically adept. Uh, and also, as I said before, like kind of chaotic, disruptive. Um, mm-hmm. They they go against kind of the, the established company man image. And at the same time, despite, uh, you know, cutting across that grain, uh, are always uh, by the end of these stories incorporated back into the like the uh, to be clear right the way these films present this narratively is like it is better to have this kind of fun scamp in charge right who has creativity and flexibility like that is the the narratives present this as a net good 
Yeah. Um, and that the man will never understand the machine as well as the scamp. Right, exactly. Right. The, the, the sort of fuddy-duddy man is not going, he is not up to the flexibility required to uh, really interact with uh, computational machines, right? He's never going to be able to outmaneuver the machine. Um, but yeah. it is the scamp who will do this. And it is, in the end, um, what happens is, is these become the new men, right? They are the new men in charge. Yeah, and we keep saying scamp <laughs> because we both like that word. But the word that Kasurik uses is boy. Mm-hmm. Um, that that this kind of flexibility and capability and uh, non-company man manishness is boyhood itself. Um, which which I I don't think uh, I don't think she uses this word, but I wrote this down in my notes. Uh, which is kind of like paradoxical, right? In, mm-hmm. in the way that we're talking about it. On one hand, completely unsuited for the regime and system that the world operates in, but also the only person who can accurately and appropriately respond to it to change the world. Exactly. Um, very much a um, uh, kind of a Will Smith and Independence Day kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the end of this chapter, right? I, I love this, actually, is, so the hellish endpoint of this, this cultural trope is Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, the person, obviously, but also like the representation of him in, in the film, The Social Network, uh, which uh, Kosurik kind of uses as her cap to the chapter saying, here is where this character is now. We have a much more like obviously clearly ambivalent relationship to this sort of person who is, you know, the young, the young man, the boy. Um, because that, like, the, the youthfulness gets tied up with, uh, I think, the, the notion of flexibility, right? It's when you become a man that you get settled in your habits, but the boy can continually disrupt. Uh, yeah. You, you have Mark Zuckerberg, who is just, like, uh, this amoral void, uh, desperately seeking some sort of human validation that he's never actually going to get because he's a huge asshole. <laughs> Yeah, if you have not, uh, if you haven't watched the David Fincher film, The Social Network, uh, you really should, especially in the in the past few months where people were kind of doing their films of the decade lists. Uh, you know, The Social Network came out and people enjoyed it, but it kind of uh, went away. But a lot of people have been talking about it again. Uh, and I want to go back and watch it again. But yeah, Jesse Eisenberg's kind of performance uh, of this cutthroat individual right and and i think that that even more like reading the the aesthetics of of the film right the 1980s like scamp even in tron and i keep saying scamp boy in tron and war games those are like very almost screwball comedy-esque films Mm -hmm. right um you know these are movies where it's like fun for the individual and the filmmaking has this kind of uh disruptive fun um you know, they're serious movies filmed like comedies. Uh, yes. The movie Real Genius, right? Um, of course, Matthew Broderick had to walk so Val Kilmer could run. Um, <laughs> but Real Genius is a comedy, but also has a, a lot of this uh, same stuff in it. I, I think the other aesthetic move that's happened here that's really interesting is that that type of boy, disruptive boyhood, goes from this kind of comedy framework or filmed like a comedy uh, into the completely austere cold nightmarish filmmaking of david fincher mm-hmm. 
um, you know, this kind of meta modernity, um, hard lines, dark shadows kind of thing. Um, so I think there's even more to this aesthetically that could, that could be dug into, but, um, is there anything else you have to say about chapter five, Michael? Uh, no, not especially, I guess, aside from the fact that this is, this is the chapter, um, where I think you can sense maybe the, the most strongly the tension between, uh, what I think are kind of the dual subjects of this book, uh, as I've already put it, like what is happening in the arcade? What are the practices in the arcade? And then what are the representations of, of the gamer or the people Mm -hmm. in the arcades? Um, because, uh, I, I think this is a good chapter. Um, but I also, uh, you know, my question is kind of, um, how can we like following this back into the place of the arcade? Um, how does that work? Right. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think maybe this is the same for you, but for me, my kind of tension there always when I'm reading things that are about the representation of myself, both in historical records and um, or the historic the representation of populations via historical records. And then also the media artifact is that I'm part of two populations that have never been accurately represented ever. And that's academics and, <laughs> and then freelance writers. <laughs> um, I don't think there's never been a media object that I think that could accurately read my economic condition and my mode of actual existence. I don't, I don't, it would be very hard for you to war games me using, and this is a different kind of thing, but well, it wouldn't be me, right? But I know many women who are freelance writers. Uh, I don't think you could watch Sex in the City and determine what their life is like, or even get a, a close perspective on the yeah. cultural impression of what their life is like. Um, I can't even think of anything that is about a male freelance writer right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm doing it. But uh, uh, the Beatles song, example, Paperback Writer. Of course, uh, <laughs> there's that one. I, but the other one is that, you know, I don't think you could watch God is Not Dead and then understand what it's like to be a college professor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a different kind of thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, so I, I agree with you. I think there, there's a tension here around the rep, the cultural representation versus, versus the lived reality, um, that I think is being, is being operated on through the use of historical documents. Um, but I think here, yeah, we're really feeling the lack of an interview, mm-hmm. um, or, or, you know, that, that methodology, but I also understand why you don't choose to do certain methodologies, um, I, you know, there's not a single uh, methodological critique that that I've ever leveraged on this uh, on this podcast that could not be equally leveraged against me or toward <laughs> me. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not not on a high horse about it. Um, chapter six. The arcade is dead. Long live the arcade. Nostalgia in the age of ubiquitous computing. It's an era, Michael. It's an era of ubiquitous computer oh okay sorry uh well my every opinion i have about this book is now shot <laughs> it's uh, wrong um uh, so this is really about I, I i thought this was a um a cool chapter but this was the one that seemed to me to be the least kind of important and and um uh like in tandem with the other arguments i could see how all the other arguments are kind of like interweaved with one another in order to give us like a big picture but this one which is really about going to and going to in the history of things like the barcade in new york and then uh, or just barcade in new york and then dave and busters and kind of why those things exist Mm -hmm. um 
I, it, it feels a little, it just feels a little bit disconnected. I think it's a cool chapter. I'm like not, mm-hmm. not complaining about reading it. But, well, it's, uh, it, it's again, it's speaking to that sort of tension. Um, it, uh, it follows through on tracing the evolution of the arcade, right? Uh, like one of the things that Kusurik says is that the, the nostalgia for the arcade is quote, nostalgia, yeah, we're actually quote, nostalgia for the arcade seems to express a longing for a more pleasant postmodern era. Um, just a quick aside here, what is really, like, wild about this is, is she's coming out of Jameson here, uh, talking about how postmodernism itself is kind of a nostalgia. It's a nostalgic thing. Um, it's, it's like a nostalgia for kind of, uh, uh, foreclosed or, like, better past. So now we have, like, post-postmodern nostalgia going on with the arcades, and I think that's really interesting. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, we get into some of the, um, the nostalgia for the arcades later on when we start talking about books. Uh, but there's not necessarily an attendant uh, sense of what has happened to the the arcade masculinity that we've been talking about, other than that it's nostalgic for itself, I guess. Um, yeah, and that, yes, that, that masculinity, as it's expressed through these things, through these, like, new arcades, is all about uh, what what maybe went on before. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's kind of unclear to me is like, did, did you have a sense in this chapter about the new bar, the new arcades being as gender splitty? No, right. And yeah. that's the other thing is that they seem kind of like once once it becomes commodified as nostalgia, suddenly it almost feels like every like especially like the Dave and Buster's stuff, right? And the Dave mm-hmm. and Buster's marketing, um, like those are explicitly like bring the family here, right? Come with your office for the office party, that sort of thing. Uh, the and one of the things actually that Kosherik points out near the end is uh, there she reads some uh, men right n- n- nostalgically writing about their arcade experiences and she notes that they do not mention women um, mm-hmm. and at the same time we know that there were women in arcades yeah. like we we can, we have photographs we have other testimonies um, so it raises this really interesting question is this an issue of selective memory on on the part of the the writers or uh is it because when at this particular point in time um in childhood your activities are kind of sex segregated and so even if there are girls in the arcade if you're a young boy you're not hanging out with girls in the arcade because that's gross uh and then that sort of ends up warping how like you you take your individual experience to be indicative of the the actual totality of history um Mm -hmm. you know what's sort of going on here uh, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, well, well just, I, I wonder your quote about that, which I okay. think is really interesting and maybe, and this is a difference I think of, you know, of speaking from the inside of me, what I'm about to read a quote <laughs> and then I'm going to make a comment and the, the comment is coming from, you know, you and I, and, you know, this is not to, I, I don't want to speak for you, Michael, so tell me if I'm wrong. You and I are both on the inside of masculinity, but also, not great fits for masculinity. Yeah, I would say that's a that's a fair description of me. <laughs> yeah, and 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 especially you know traditional like masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know certainly, <laughs> certainly at other times in my life was a very uh very bad fit for uh traditional masculinity. Mm-hmm. And so um so so it's always interesting to kind of see the monolith of masculinity presented and then and then like what my experience of it is. So uh, I'm going to read the quote and then what I'm going to say is coming out of my experience of like being uh, you know the call coming from inside the house but 
it's a shitty phone line. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, okay, so this is on 184. Under pressure, uh, under pressure to quote be a man. Many men find it risky or uncomfortable to verbalize general nostalgia for childhood. But if the arcade is rendered a particularly masculine place, a place where boys proved themselves skilled and disciplined, then it, like high school football teams and youthful pranks, may serve as a safe topic for men who wish to express a sentimental longing for their youth. To long for a hyper-masculinized, hyper-competitive environment would minimize men's potential for gender transgression when engaging in nostalgia. The masculinization of the arcade in cultural memory may have to do with the desire to have a childhood site that is a safe subject of nostalgia for men. Um, and that's the end of the quote. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting about that is like, absolutely, men men use football in particular, right? I'm from the South. Men use football in particular as a way of romanticizing and talking about nostalgia. But I, I think either two things have happened. Um, either this system of like transgression has fundamentally shifted uh, or, or of like needing to masculinize the past has shifted, or uh, it, I don't know. I've never experienced it this way ever. I think that, you know, in gatherings of men that I've been around in various times of my life, there is a universalization of nostalgia across thousands of different vectors um, that I, that I just don't even recognize this as a statement. Um I especially when you come from the the impoverished South, right? Like mm. yesterday was better than today in every form and function. The price <laughs> of gas is a way of talking about nostalgia for for the past and being emotional about the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I, I, I just don't even recognize this as like part of my experience of masculinity. But again, that's to say. You know, I'm not exactly in in the heart, in, in the core, in the imperial core of of masculinity, and so maybe maybe I just don't have the the right thing for it. But but if that is complicated in the mechanism of masculinity, um, then I don't. If arcades don't work the way that she says they do, as far as like commodity or masculinizing and, and creating a, a resonance chamber for masculinity, then I don't know what the barcade does. And, mm-hmm. and I find that really interesting. I mean, I go to, wait, I have a barcade in my small regional city that's, you know, a few minutes from my house. I go to that barcade. Uh, it does not have the kind of, it is not the kind of nostalgia space that's being described here. And so earlier when I was saying maybe that's just a question of how it's changed over the past several years, um, you know, maybe it's that. But I also think of people like mad about the Transformers when Transformers, uh, you know, when Michael Bay was really cranking those out and talking about how like Michael Bay ruined my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and on one hand, I see that as like a masculinization. I get how that works because it's like a field of competition and like who can remember Transformers trivia better than the other person. Uh, but on the other hand, it does seem much more complicated than that. Yeah, um, I would say uh, the, the the thing that I think is important about what Kashurik is arguing is that this is, I think it is nostalgia for childhood specifically, right? It's not mm-hmm. childhood for like the gas prices yesterday. It is, mm-hmm. it is for a specific form of childhood. And this is critical, I think. And it's not something that she gets into because it's 2015 and she doesn't necessarily have the time or the place to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um but in the in the five years since this book was published, we have seen we have seen men be nostalgic for things. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, um, yes, yeah, like absolutely. Ghostbusters, Stranger Things, really like what we are seeing is kind of J.J. Um, <laughs> Abrams's career. Yeah, J.J. Abrams's entire <laughs> career. Uh, the we are seeing um, 
not just arcades specifically becoming uh, this site of safe nostalgia, but the consumer culture of which arcade, like the youth consumer culture of which arcades were a part, becomes the site of nostalgia. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think that's right. So yeah, maybe my, maybe I'm taking just too much of a blinkered view of it. Right. And I just think like, and also like related to that, um, there's, and this is something that we'll touch on, I guess, in the conclusion, right? But there's, there, there ends up being this highly reactionary element to, to this, uh, masculine nostalgia. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I would say that like, obviously, like I'm not of this cohort, so I don't experience this particular type of nostalgia. If anything, like the thing that I experience nostalgia for is like the internet before it was owned by four companies, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> like that's my arcade space. Uh, so uh, it, it is is interesting to see uh, kind of these uh, these shifts. Uh, and I also don't have I again, I'm not stuck in the imperial core of, of masculinity either. But like, I don't feel any sort of gender anxiety about expressing sentimentality for for the past. Um, so I do think that um there is probably there is probably something to what Kosurik is getting at with uh, this this nostalgia for a wide panoply of affective attachments that men were allowed to have, or rather boys were allowed to have, um, that were also all kind of predicated on a very particular type of like con- consumer uh, behavior, right? Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think it's right. Yeah, maybe, and yeah, maybe that that really is it. Is like, Kasurik maybe is uh, the generation that she's particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem like, from all of her examples, does seem like this largely holds accurate to them. And so, again, this could just be like, there's a fundamental generational change that's happened, right? Um, you know, uh, around our age group that that has changed the way that people interact with with their kind of like nostalgia. But but I guess I, I do think she's like a hundred percent correct that like when uh, these when nostalgia gets intermingled with masculinity, you end up with two hour rant videos, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And like this contested space of like me versus everyone else on the internet. You get angry gamers and things like that. Right. That's not to uh, that's not to criticize the angry gamer, um, <laughs> but to criticize the notion of angry gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very distinct yeah. from like one of the things that she points out is that nostalgia for arcades is often um, nostalgia for specific machines uh, because mm-hmm. these were objects that like people did not own, and you know you could go to your your laundromat or your favorite arcade and find that your favorite machine was just gone because uh, the the proprietor like it was broken and the proprietor never got it fixed, or it was a leased machine and it was um, taken taken back by the company or whatever uh, mm-hmm. of course the the cultural touchstone we all need to know here is the episode of seinfeld where george is desperate to save his frogger machine in his high yeah. store um which is <laughs> uh, uh, it's good <laughs> but yeah no it's it's it is uh it is interesting because, like, I'm not going to have nostalgia for a particular arcade machine, right? To me, an, an, an emulator is going to be just as good because I don't yeah. have that experience with going to the pizza place and playing this specific machine and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with, too, talking about geography earlier. Like, I didn't, I, the closest arcade to me was 30 minutes away, and it was really like in any direction you wanted to go. And uh, so it was like, the Mortal Kombat machine at Burger King, mm-hmm. uh, 
or not Burger King, but at Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was about it. And I, you know, we didn't. I was not from a. I was not from a Pizza Hut class. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was few and far between. So, um, so it could be that just like you know the the age time too is a little mm-hmm. different. Anyway, um, it's it's a cool chapter. It's worth reading. Uh, there's a guy who's a professional gamer uh, named Tim McVeigh, and that really threw me for a loop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and for for the theory heads out there, uh, pretty substantial engagement with Walter Benjamin here and mm-hmm. and childhood. Uh, and that's the Walter Benjamin police coming to yeah. get me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also one of the books that so she reads. Um, uh, D.B. Weiss's book, uh, Lucky Wander Boy, yeah, which I just want to point out because apparently D.B. Weiss wrote a book. D.B. Weiss, if you don't know, is one of the uh, the former showrunners for Game of Thrones. I assume it's the same D.B. Weiss. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a Timothy McVeigh kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just I was like, oh, wow, that guy wrote a book and someone published it because you know I watched Game of Thrones and I was surprised that humans were behind that. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, that book exists. It's it sounds sort of interesting, um, and also sort of bad in precisely the ways that I would expect a novel by D.B. Weiss, the showrunner of Game of Thrones, to be bad. So, if 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 you're interested in that sort of thing, maybe read Kosciuszek's uh sort of the way she picks apart um this novel, which is about uh a, a an aging former arcade gamer and his nostalgia for a particular arcade game uh, that he just can't seem to find. Yeah, I'm surprised you know it, this. This uh, uh, Lucky Wonder Boy shows up in like game studies literary theory books or literary studies books occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never read it, <laughs> despite how having read about it a few times. Other thing I want to talk about, really, really, like literally one sentence here at the end of of the chapter is they talk about the King of Kong. Uh, mm-hmm. If you haven't seen, you know what we're gonna do, Michael? What? We're gonna do an episode on the King of Kong. Oh, we're gonna okay. watch the documentary and we're gonna talk about it. All right, because it's a game. It is a hundred percent a game studies, like classic text at this point. Lots of people teach it. I've taught it a bunch of times. That's it. We're gonna do it. You want to do it next? Sure. Yeah. Like, why not? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. But just a little preview of that. Uh, King of Kong has my favorite use of like music that does not make any sense in <laughs> in the. Because have you seen it before? I I have not actually. I've seen clips oh. from it. I've never watched the whole thing through. Not a oh, game studies so person, dude. I know. I'm so excited. Well, you know, some people just watch it for for funsies. Uh, I I'm could, so excited. So I will be clear. Like, I could not care less about arcade gamers. Like, I okay. do not care. Right. This book. This is great. Love this book. I don't care about the gamers themselves at all. <laughs> oh no, you're gonna love it. Uh, there's so the section she talks about in here of of kind of fitting up Steve Weeby's uh, relationship to arcade games. Uh, to his kind of like failed uh, company man status and his kind of failed status as a high school athlete mm-hmm. kind of guy. Um, that is all set to the cures pictures of you <laughs> that is mixed five times higher than it should be. And so it is so loud uh, compared to the, like the dialogue that's happening at the same time. Oh, uh, it's one of my favorite like weird documentary moments. Oh, I'm excited. Okay, conclusion. I'm sorry. I got, I've gotten too excited about uh, Steve Wiebe. So, yeah, the conclusion is called The Future is Now, Changes in Gaming Culture. Um, and this begins looking at two events with which we are both familiar. Uh, 2012, when Anita, Anita Sarkeesian uh, launched her Kickstarter. It was a Kickstarter, right? Yeah. We had Kickstarter back then. We had Kickstarter. Um, 
Yeah, the crowdfunding campaign for Tropes versus Women about uh, sexist tropes in video games and the massive blowback from that. Um, you know, there were like Newgrounds games where you could like punch Sarkeesian in the face and her it, face got like progressively more like beaten and bruised. Uh, and then also, of course, 2014's Gamergate. Uh, these kind of uh, very highly react, highly reactionary uh responses to perceived changes in gaming culture um these reactions are you know primarily by uh young men online who think that uh women and uh just all sorts of people who are not young white men essentially are uh quote-unquote colonizing uh the space of video games that is supposed to be their space right the space where uh these young white men took refuge from the broader culture that did not understand them. Uh, Kosirik points out that this is, uh, much like Mark Zuckerberg, kind of the hellish endpoint, the follow-through of uh, this technomasculine ideal of the gamer, of the person who is simultaneously uh, 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 against society, right? The scamp who is against society, uh, but also... Uh, really actually being groomed to become the 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 leader of society uh that sort of thing yeah it uh i don't i don't really have much to say about it other than um at this point now i think across game studies and some of those books we've read for this podcast i've seen about five different explanatory apparatuses of like what really made gamergate happen right and it's this mm-hmm. interesting kind of thing, I think, like this this phenomenon that uh, is so polyvalent and kind of weird, polysemic too, um, mm-hmm. that obviously had like brutal repercussions, or you know, not, mm-hmm. not even repercussions, brutal effects on on people, and and was organized around doing bad things to people. But it's interesting how in the academy there has been like a move to talk about it as like the endpoint of whatever mode of inquiry that you had um, or, mm-hmm. or that your mode of inquiry gives a, a unique analytic on it. I'll be very curious in about, you know, 10 years or so um, when that, I think that will eventually die off and then we will have some number of people who come to do almost like historiographic work to be like all the different people who talked about Gamergate and like the way that they talked about it. And I think I'll be very interested mm-hmm. in that kind of account of, uh, of how we get there. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, to be clear, I don't think like, I don't think Kosurik is wrong here. Right. I do think yeah, I that. Do too. I, yeah. Like, I think she, I think right. she's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but it also is interesting that in most of the game studies, I, I think we've talked about Gamergate maybe three or four times mm-hmm. now it's come up in a couple of books. Um, you know, it is, I do not think that is a phenomenon that can be wholly explained by what is going on in games culture, right? Yeah. I think understanding how, how the Chan boards work, which is not distinct, wholly distinct from gaming by any means, right? But the Chan boards are a specific type of, you know, online ecology in the way that that in, interfaces with um, the affordances of, like, contemporary social media, Uh it provides space for a lot of this potential that Kusurik is talking about to become actualized. Yeah. Um, and, and how this was so. in concert with many different harassment campaigns that were very similar 
um, you know, particularly uh, for women of color or centered around women of mm-hmm. color beforehand and how you see a lot of the same bad actors kind of move from there and how we've seen a lot of the same bad actors move from Gamergate into larger politics. And I think we see a lot of explanatory apparatuses that say, like, uh, games were the incubation space for that. Um, but I think that, that that is taking a limited view which I think you're, you're demonstrating here as well, whereas like games were a site for those things to occur and they were occurring across a broad number of sites. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, there, there is something interesting that games provide one of those sites, but also so does young adult literature. Uh, so does just writing about race on the internet, you know, that, that created mm-hmm. that kind of um, uh, opportunity for bad actors, um, mm-hmm. you know, for them to fold what people are just doing with their lives to fold that into their narrative and then harass people uh, because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like heavy metal music, right? Yeah. That's another, th- like there was, there was another sort of concurrent campaign that happened in, in that scene. So, yeah. So, so it's interesting. It's interesting just to see, I just, you know, just noting that, that Gamergate comes is come up several times across the books that we've read. And that, um, yeah, like you're saying that I, I'm not sure that games culture is uh, wholly explanatory there. Um, other stuff here at the end. One of the other things that Kosirik also talks about is, uh, and this is kind of in in uh, distinction to the the Mark Zuckerberg example, uh, the the effusive public mourning of Steve Jobs when he passed, um, and sort of the the narrative that immediately sprung up about his kind of unique genius and his brilliance and his vision uh, as, you know, weirdly enough, okay, she she uh, she does not actually say this right, but. Uh, what we are seeing is kind of the first big uh, moment of public mourning for for the gaming scamp, right? <laughs> like the gaming scamp is literally dying. Oh, um, rest in peace to the gaming scamp. <laughs> yeah, uh, but also in the process, uh, as, as Kusurik points out, um, we paper over uh, kind of some of his shady business practices, the really not great ways that he treated the people who worked with him and under him, mm-hmm. Um and so we, uh, even at like this, we we see even as we are deeply ambivalent about Mark Zuckerberg, uh, we see a kind of hagiography for this figure still being constructed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that there's this kind of uh, for for the gaming scamp, uh, and for the the gaming boy. Um, <laughs> I like the idea of this the figure being the gaming boy, um, but uh, for that person they are constantly being reconfigured in, in society, much like the arcade people, right? The, the arcade goers and particularly the young men going to arcades, that they're constantly being reconfigured um, into whatever shape that society finds the most convenient. So she brings up Fatality, whose name I did not know beforehand. Uh, Fatality, if you don't know, is like a very famous um, kind of professional gamer. Uh, was Quake 3 might have been Fatality's first big game or maybe just Quake. Um, mm-hmm. But his name, I really want to, uh, uh, I really want to get the name something Wendell, <laughs> which I just the name Wendell is is uh, it's like a Mad Magazine name, you know? Yeah, I mean, this there's yeah Jonathan Wendell. Jonathan Wendell. Um, I was gonna say whenever I hear the name Wendell, I think of uh, the pale kid from The Simpsons who always throws up on the bus. This is his name Wendell. Deep cut. Yes, his name is well, Wendell. There you go. Uh, it's like that's like in the first like three seasons he's a character who's named once 
but that has that has cemented the name Wendell for me forever. Some anyway, people yes. have uh, arcade machines, and some people got the first three seasons of The Simpsons. <laughs> we know where Michael <laughs> is. Um, but uh, but what I find interesting, so she kind of like tracks his career a little bit, um, and the titles he's won, and how he has gone from a kind of individual player, right, who's good at the game and is you know an esports athlete, cyber athlete, whatever. And has transformed in like into like a figure, right? This fatality mm-hmm. as a as a as a person. And uh, there's a quote on 194 quote. Uh, so his kind of work is in quote enabled by computer technologies that he also sells. His youth is highlighted in popular and official profiles, and the games he plays revel in violence, both militarized and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Kasurik, like fatality is the end point almost for all these different narratives that that happen in the same way that steve jobs or uh mark zuckerberg are in the world of gaming fatality is like uh, uh embodies all these different kind of qualities that have been in games and been privileged in games and been focused in on in games uh since the late 70s early 80s and what i think is interesting about that too is that she doesn't really get into it necessarily but that that uh the young white male is is figurable in all these ways and kind of put into all these different systems, but also is a site of monetization, right? And fatality really shows the site of monetization there of like, if you want to be good like him, you got to buy his mouse, right? In the same way that you got to buy like the good baseball <laughs> right. player's bat or his glove or whatever. Um, and uh, if you want to be a good professional gamer, then you got to play Call of Duty or you got to play Fortnite um, as opposed to competitive Tetris. Although in the world of like retro nostalgia, competitive Tetris, I think, has just as much, uh, maybe not as much money, but as much kind of cultural force as uh, being a good Call of Duty player. Um, and yeah, and then the, the book kind of ends with saying, you know, games are constantly expanding, more people are playing it, but it, it still has this kind of set of mechanisms for including men and excluding women that we have not properly thought through, and maybe we need to do that better. Yep, and maybe we do. I, I, I think uh, the, this is a great book for people who are interested in doing their own either doctoral or master's work to look at a small sector in contem- the contemporary period right now uh, to see how it either matches up or how it's the continuation of these things. Uh, you know, has have things changed so significantly that some of the conclusions that Kasurik comes to are wrong? Or are they hyper-accelerated or whatever? Um, I think mm-hmm. I think there, we are at a really ripe period to do this kind of work in another area that you would like to do it in. I think it'd be a great master's mm-hmm. thesis kind of work. But obviously, bigger stuff uh, if you wanted to do, uh, you know, a doctoral thesis or whatever. Yeah, it occurred to me while I was reading, it would actually be very interesting to think through when she was talking about um, the loss of machines and things like that. It would be very interesting to trace from the arcade to uh, contemporary games as service models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And subscriptions and things like mm-hmm. that, um, because in some ways, right, the arcade becomes virtualized. Yeah, there is a weird, you know, uh, in the Counter-Strike community, there's always this narrative of like, well, back in 1.4 you know blah 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 blah, (laughs) right you know uh dante douglas's famous tweet about that that i will not repeat here um (laughs) but uh but there is that kind of uh kind of thing right that happens for 
particularly in online cultures across games of service or online games where certain patches or certain moments become very privileged. And if you weren't there, you just don't know and you, you just won't mm-hmm. get it. Right. And you don't understand what it meant to be a good player, you know, when wrath of the Lich King came out or whatever. Um, uh, yeah. Playing, playing TF2 before all the hats came uh, in. That's a hundred percent. Right. Uh, you know, before, uh, Wishbringer got patched or whatever happened in destiny this week. I don't know. You know that kind of stuff. Uh, people in the Discord have been talking about it, but uh, but yeah, I think I, I think that would be an excellent research project. And you know what? For you out there, that's a freebie. Michael and I, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> but it would be. I do not. I've got other things. Uh, but I would love to read it. I think it'd be great to read. Yeah. So um, so you could do it, and there would be a lot of documentation for you to go through because you could read forum threads. Um, you know, from either like the official WoW forums or Destiny uh, Reddit threads from a billion years ago or whatever. There'd be a lot of good discourse analysis you could do. Um, anyway, think about it. It's the end of our episode. Next time, we're going to do the King of Kong. Yeah, yeah, going to do a movie. Ooh, I'm excited. Uh, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Warren is Dead. You can find me on uh, Michael and my. We have a show called Too Much Future. You can see it on YouTube.com/slash Ranged Touch. Uh, it's about playing through the Fallout games. We finished Fallout One. By the time this episode comes out, I uh, we will be releasing somewhere around there our first episode of Fallout Two. So that'll be cool for you to listen to or and, and check out. Uh, we're just playing through the games. We're talking about them. They're really interesting. Uh, last episode we determined if Fallout is satire or not. Uh, no answers mm-hmm. for you here, but you can check it out. You can also find me on Twitter at C Kunzelman. Um, you can check out other range touch stuff uh, at, at range touch. You can read a lot of uh, good tweets there. Uh, Michael's been, Michael's been doing our social media over there. And um, <laughs> if you really like the show and you want to support it and you want to see us grow and do more stuff, if you want to pay for our rental of uh, the King of Kong, then you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and support us there for as little as a dollar a month. Literally a dollar does help. Um, and you know, uh, uh, buying these books and then talking about them, it's not, it's not free. So, uh, well, I guess talking about them is free, but recording it and then, and then, uh, doing all the labor hours to, to edit it together, uh, edit out all of Michael's curse words and, uh, mm-hmm. um, hosting it online. That's not all free. So, you know, uh, chucking in a, a cup of coffee a month really does help us out in a significant and cool way. We're trying to get more patrons over there. So if you enjoy the show or you enjoyed any of the previous shows we've done, uh, please consider doing that. It really help us out. Additionally, if you're listening to this on uh, iTunes or anything else that has a rating system, giving us a five-star rating on there would be really helpful. Um, it allows us to get in front of more people. Getting in front of more people means more people are listening to our uh, uh, unhinged thoughts about Matthew Broderick. <laughs> uh, something else I was going to say. If you like actual play podcasts, you should check out Sword Coast Coast to Coast. Um, and you can find all of this information on rangedtouch.com or in the description down below this episode and whatever thing you're listening to it on butter biscuits. You can listen to You can listen to butter biscuits our brand new find out, find out who butter biscuits is. Listen to sword coast coast. It's coast. good. Um, okay, great. Michael, do you have anything uh, left to say? Uh, I just, in terms of things to plug, um, so uh, you listeners may or may not be familiar with the No Sleep podcast, which is a anthology horror fiction podcast that spun off of the um, our No Sleep subreddit. Uh, I think 
today uh if you are if you are like a, a subscriber to that like they have a, a patreon or something um if you were a subscriber you would have gotten um this latest episode and i think in a week it's going to go public uh it is not something i have had any sort of direct hand in but it is an adaptation of uh my creepypasta smile dog uh that has become something of a weird online thing i don't know we could do an entire podcast about like what the hell happened with smile dog anyway uh there is a uh, an episode of No Sleep that has just gone up today on which um, I consulted, and it is it has my the imprimatur uh, of me as the guy who somehow made a meme. So, if any of that made any sense to you, you should go listen to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you clearly it makes no sense to Cameron. No, it does. But I'm just saying, like Smile <laughs> Dog. If you it, that's the kind of thing. If you're in the know, you know what's going on. If you don't know, yeah, you know, you don't know what's going on. But I don't want to tell you anything like, about it. The end of this, the end of this episode is like me having a stroke. I'm like, <laughs> learn about butter biscuits and smile dog. <laughs> yeah, it does seem. It seems like you've embraced glossolalia here at the end. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you know, sight unseen, you should check it out. Smile dog is very interesting. If you don't know what it is, give it to Google. Uh, and and our good friend Michael Lutz here was the uh, inventor of of the smiling dog. What smiles a lot um okay anything else you want to plug nope i'm good well then take us out on our famous catchphrase uh come back next time to the game study study buddies where quite appropriately for this book the social is predicated on its exclusions (laughs) 